You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa. And I'm Yvette. Today, what we have for you is a short news roundup. Um, And last week, we talked again about the importance of civics education to our national security. And you might remember that former Secretary Gates has become part of this very sensible mission. And we've also talked a lot about Russia's efforts to diminish our essential democratic institutions, particularly through its false messaging campaigns that are directed at Americans, largely through social media, but were intended to really diminish our trust in our third branch of government, the judiciary. Well, interestingly enough, we have now learned that the public's perception of the Supreme Court is at an all-time low, according to a recent Gallup poll. This strikes me as a consequence of the availability of information about nominees in the digital age. I guess my thought, Yvette, is that in the past, I think a nominating president could have avoided the public knowing every single detail of a particular Supreme Court nominee's past. And I have to say, and this isn't to defend any opinion or not, I did find it interesting because I do track the, the opinions of the court, particularly the last two terms. And it strikes me that a lot of the predictions about the current justices really have not proved correct to wit Gorsuch, you know, gay marriage. Also, I would say Gorsuch uh, definition of a, a crime of violence, of you know, violent felony. He said is constitutionally vague under the residual clause of the Armed Career Criminal Act. I mean, is this really a national security concern? What do you think of that? I mean, I think that it goes a little bit beyond what you're talking about with the availability of information about nominees. While I think that's certainly a concern, I think that the Supreme Court's standing with the public has declined as kind of the partisanship inside and outside of Washington has grown exponentially. And we've gotten more 5-4 and now 6-3 decisions that favor uh, one party over another. And I also think that the legacy of the, you know, key election law cases, starting with Bush v. Gore in 2000, Rousseau v. Common Cause, which allows um, partisan gerrymandering, which unfortunately races use as a proxy and the court kind of split the baby um, on that case in, in ways that were deeply unsatisfying for parts of the population that have really struggled to maintain and exercise their voting rights. And you've also got, um, you know, the justices themselves speaking out and trying to defend uh, their honor on kind of both sides of the uh, of the ideological spectrum with uh, Justice Coney Barrett making speeches, just really defending the idea that the judiciary is independent. And uh, Justice Breyer, who's just come out with a new book, discussing how he wants to ensure that court's legacy is one of studied jurisprudence. Justice Clarence Thomas also made some comments recently about this. And uh, Justice Roberts is really well known for trying to maintain the status of the court as a as a neutral, independent, nonpartisan body. It's just the problem is that when the political parties, you know, run on nominating justices in order to uh, achieve one or another outcome, even the fig leaf that uh, happens during the nominating process of, well, I can't opine on something that may become before the court, it really loses its ability to convince 
the public of that narrative, and it's really being reflected in this in this Gallup poll. Um, why is this a national security issue? Well, this is one of the indicators that you know when you're doing diplomatic work, uh, all you guys out there who are interested in working at the State Department um, should be aware of these kinds of institutions, the court system. That's one of many factors that you would look at uh, to see whether or not there is an erosion in the function of the democracy in in a foreign country, and there isn't any reason that we shouldn't examine our country with the same lens. It really is of concern when Supreme Court is not held in the esteem, which is really necessary in order to ensure that we have confidence in our democratic institutions writ large. Right. And it has a lot to do with how we're received when we're engaging in international relations. Are we that bright light, you know, shining at the top of the hill? Are we a model for the rule of law? Um, or, you know, is the government run by political hacks who, you know, really don't care about justice and the rule of law and are just trying to advance a particular ideological agenda? I mean, you know, at this point, I'm, I, I would say that, you know, the court has been to a very low point before. Um, there have been times, you know, as you know, where the, the court was packed and that happened 80 years ago. And there has been an instance of out there where there were allegations that uh, Justice Fortas had, you know, involved himself in some things that were a conflict of interest and potentially was involved in some corruption, whether those uh, were ever true or not. It was kind of interesting because stories circulated that, uh, you know, President Johnson boxed his ears and made physical threats to get him to resign. But that is a very different situation from a time when trust in the court is diminished just because of how the process of nominating and sort of speeches and comments made by justices have swayed public opinion. I think if I were chief justice, I would recommend, certainly not mandate, that public appearances by justices certainly be kept to a minimum. So we're going to pivot here, switching topics. Cryptocurrency, Yvette, has been used over and over again in international espionage cases by international organized crime, by foreign governments in order to help with illicit transactions. What is interesting right now is 80, over 80% of that cryptocurrency is mined, as they call it, which is just supercomputing created in China. But China has now outlawed cryptocurrency, including Bitcoin, Ether, and enhanced anonymity cryptocurrency. The enhanced anonymity cryptocurrency, I can understand that. You're talking about Zcash, Monero. Those things are pretty difficult to trace. But the uh, Financial Times is really looking at something else. And that is that not just the mining in China, but the largest exchanges, which are really the mediums that have uh, are able to be regulated under U.S. law and, frankly, most of European law, like Binance is one of the largest ones. They're Chinese. And, um, you know, they're all having to take care of their trades to make sure nothing occurs in China. Otherwise, they would violate the law there. So I guess this also begs the question, depending upon how skeptical you are, and I guess I am. Is China about to issue its own stable coin? And I know a lot of people have offered that opinion that there's something else going on here with China. And if China were to do that, what U.S. national security laws would be available to regulate trade in a Chinese stable coin? Um, and could it present a threat to the dollar, which, you know, as the international exchange currency gives us a lot of our authority globally? Um, and obviously brings a lot of revenue into the treasury. I well, think we this, don't have this, the tools. 
This is, yeah, this is really concerning. I think we are concerned about China in an awful lot of ways, but this is a pretty niche way that could be very influential. Can you just tell us like what the law is and like whether or not we're equipped to counter this concern? You know, we we aren't. I can tell you that we have a variety of tools to the extent that exchanges are, for example, money remitting services. Then we have things like the Bank Secrecy Act. We have bank regulations. But these exchanges, as a practical matter, they don't fall under the authorities of things like comptroller of the currency. It's really difficult to say what role the Fed could play in stabilizing the dollar. Would that be kind of the end? And one of the things, if you think back to when we talked to Brian Egan, who had served you know, in a very high level in the Treasury Department, he talked about what would happen to sanctions if the dollar suddenly plummeted or stopped being the global exchange currency. And so I think there are very real things to think about here in terms of our national security and our standing globally. Um, but I will tell you somewhat amusingly for any of you who know and like Professor Scott Galloway, um, who, let me just say, is only intermittently serious about anything briefly, he has suggested that national security power move here would really be for the United States to issue its own stable coin backed by the power of the U.S. dollar um, and with the clear-eyed support of the Federal Reserve. So I think this is something to watch. It sounds niche. But, you know, as Brian Egan has mentioned, let's face it, Saudi oil is exchanged in the U.S. dollar. Basically, every transaction somehow touches or takes place, at least in part, in the U.S. dollar. Let's face facts. That's made our currency strong. That's made our, our you know, government and our international girth very powerful, very large. If something were to shift seismically here, I think there's real serious concern. We certainly don't have the laws and we need a whole of government approach to this. And we need uh, we need new laws and new ways to regulate transactions in cryptocurrency, no matter which cryptocurrency it might be. Well, we will definitely be keeping an eye on it. And I know you will, for sure. Elisa, you've always kind of come up with uh, <laughs> with um, these interesting topics uh, in the realm of cybersecurity. Um, let's continue on with a couple of other notes from abroad. Angela Merkel is leaving after 17 years as German chancellor. Uh, she decided not to run again. And um, her party suffered a um, kind of surprising defeat. And I think uh, President President Biden remarked kind of in surprise that they did not continue on in power. It is going to transition to Olaf Scholz. The Christian Democrats had a coalition government with the, um, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, um, which is Olaf Scholz's party. But it is going to be uh, interesting to see, especially since the United States is currently rebuilding a lot of its relationships with our um, European allies. Germany is one of our strongest trading partners. They're an important member in NATO um, and the Organization on Security and Cooperation in Europe. So it's good news, um, but we will we'll see how um, how things come together in Germany um, over the coming weeks and months. And we will shift our gaze to the Korean Peninsula. And Before we do that, though, can we just quickly, Yvette, if you don't mind, let's just remind our listeners who might not recall that during the Merkel administration, uh, they built a large pipeline from Russia to supply natural gas. And that would have made and did make Germany dependent on Russia for that natural gas supply. And frankly, it's used in every home in Germany. In the last administration, they used you know, some threats 
to try to block that pipeline. And ultimately, Germany went ahead with it. And I think that what I think, regardless of party, that might be an issue of some concern. Uh, because you don't want the influence that may come from supplying such an essential source of energy. Anyway, let's move on, though. There are other continents. Indeed. There's a continuing state of war on the Korean peninsula. The North Korean government started missile tests up again. These were their first missile tests in six months. And on top of that, they have signaled an interest in resuming talks to South Korea in order to um, try and persuade the United States to relax economic sanctions. So there's kind of a persistent theme of both sides striving for reunification of Korea. But experts warn that a peace treaty, if it were to come, it would come at a cost. It would increase North Korea's leverage in demanding withdrawal of U.S. troops. And we will put up some um, news articles to this effect if you want to dive deeper. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I would, uh, as a side note, know, however that the current leader of North Korea has had a massive weight loss. I don't know what's going on there. I don't know what camp he went to, uh, but I have to say he is a new svelte fella and hasn't been photographed lately smoking. So I don't know if that's, uh, he's trying to get ready for his debut um, in some sort of peace treaty announcement. Uh, But I did find that interesting for all the reasons that no one else does. All right, so let's move on. Let's just start with this. Yvette, what do you have to say about a man who is chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who meets with Bob Woodward? May we just pause for a moment? Let's just pause, pause, pause. I think that every administration um, has cooperated with Mr. Woodward and they have reaped the whirlwind as a result. Um, Both sides of the aisle uh, tends to get the business from Mr. Woodward, but it's it's a it's a Washington tradition. Um, as a native um, of the DMV area, I am used to reading his books every two years, and they come out like clockwork. But um, they they do go in depth, and they they do cause uh, ripples, especially when the administration is still in office. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just say that um, he's a snake charmer. You know that, um, so maybe it's not the best judgment to meet with him. But nevertheless. Uh, I think the bigger issue goes beyond, you know, beyond sort of the wisdom of sitting down with Bob Woodward. And that has to do with what happened and what he had to explain today, which is um, jumping back for a a moment during the last administration, he expressed to Woodward, I'm, I'm assuming this is true. I think he has admitted some portion of this, if I'm correct that he uh, contacted his Chinese counterpart in those waning days of the Trump administration and during the transition period between the current administration and the prior administration, largely to reassure his Chinese counterparts that they would not be the subjects of our targets of a nuclear attack. Wow. So (laughs) former President Trump did not take this well. Um, He and others have called this treason. This is a legal term that's found in the Constitution. It has a definition. Um, And we've explored this um, this particular characterization in the past. Um, But let's just be specific, since we are the National Security Law Podcast, Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution says that treason is levying war against the United States or adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. And the chairman and legal experts deny that this definition applies to his behavior. And this was a point that 
the general took the opportunity to clarify during his testimony on the Hill today, essentially, he conveyed that he was trying to further the aims of President Trump because there was no threat of attack um, that existed. And he was reassuring um, the Chinese government about the state of affairs. And it was consistent with the, the Trump administration's position. And so there was no treason. There was no daylight between him and the president. Uh, and so that's the story. Um, and he's sticking to it. Um, mm. I, think, I think the more interesting nugget that came out of the Woodward book um, outside of the calls to the Chinese government is whether or not his interpositioning himself between the president and the apparatus inside the you know, US military um, to execute a nu- nuclear strike. He held some meetings, uh, reportedly, according to Mr. Woodward, um, held, General Milley held meetings um, with each of the service chiefs and planned to engineer a reverse Saturday Night Massacre if the president wanted to launch a nuclear attack that was not responsive to a proportionate threat. Essentially, um, if General Milley did not believe that the use of nuclear weapons was appropriate, then he and the service chiefs would resign in mass, um, which would signal to everyone uh, their concerns about the wisdom of proceeding along these lines. General Milley is subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, like all other members of the armed services, and can be court-martialed just like anyone else for failure to obey orders. Um, And since he isn't in the chain of command for executing these kinds of strikes, it's highly unusual for him to essentially create a role for himself out of whole cloth. However, since he retains President Biden's confidence, it's unlikely that any action um, would be taken in the disciplinary system or, or, or beyond under the UCMJ against General Milley. But we will uh, continue to track developments as detail comes out around the events that led up to and past uh, the January 6th uh, insurrection. It's also worth noting that there's some new legislation in place that makes uh, General Milley the first chairman to serve a guaranteed four four-year term, which um, originally was two years renewable once um, by the White House. Uh, Technically, he serves at the pleasure of the president, and there is precedent for removal of um, top military leaders. Many experts think that this would be pretty unwise um, because it would be destabilizing to the military and national security overall. Um, And I anticipate that we will be exploring this topic uh, and civil civilian military relationships um, much more deeply in future podcasts. I think if I were the president, I might sit down uh, with General Milley and suggest that he uh, avoid red wine with Mr. Woodward. I so think you should that tell would... that to everyone in the administration. <laughs> That's good advice yes. for everyone. But you yes. know what? It makes for good reading. I, I will admit to being one of the first ones in line when I saw it was coming out. I put it, uh, I put it in my queue to read. Wow. Okay. So uh, let's go to yet another topic because uh, I like the world of cyber, period, full stop. I find it fascinating. Uh, And what I found really fascinating when Apple made an announcement saying that they were basically going to scan photos uh, on iPhones for possible child pornography. Um, Now, uh, to be clear, if they give notice and a user, there's some sort of implicit consent, arguably there's really not a Fourth Amendment violation. But as we say in the law, it's also not a good look. 
Apple must have figured this out. Um, they have a lot of smart people working there. And so uh, after serious objections about privacy rights, Friday, Apple announced that it was going to delay, not completely never do, but delay the scan of users' photo libraries for images of child exploitation. And so here's what they had to say, um, Yvette, because um, you are an excellent communicator. I found this fascinating. Last month, we announced plans for, few, for features intended to help protect children from predators. Wow, that's what QAnon says too. I'm just gonna pause. Um, and they went on to say who use communications tools to recruit and exploit children and limit the spread of child sexual abuse material. However, with that noble cause in mind and based on feedback from customers, advocacy groups, researchers, and others, we've decided to take additional time over the coming months to collect input and make improvements before releasing these critically important child safety features. Wow, so what do you think? Apple, uh, this is fascinating. We've, we've talked about Apple and it's the dance that it does between um, privacy and cooperation with law enforcement uh, and law enforcement initiatives. Um, you may recall we podcasted a while back on the San Bernardino uh, terrorist attack and um, Apple's unwillingness to unlock uh, the phone for the FBI during their investigation. And ultimately, the FBI ended up using a third party to uh, get access to that phone. Um, and so we continue to watch Apple kind of figure out what its policies are in real time. I had a ton of questions around this particular announcement. What would the legal implications have been if Apple had moved forward with this um, with this uh, this initiative to detect child uh, sexual abuse material, would it create liability for them if they surfaced it? Would the government be able to compel them to implicate individual users for prosecution? Does the government have the power to make Apple scan um, for uh, this type of material on its servers? And if they were, you know, if the government would pass a statute, would it be constitutional? I could see why they pushed pause, and I'm surprised that it made it to the announcement phase before they did, because they're a $2 trillion company, and I know they've got outstanding legal counsel, so I, I don't don't understand where the breakdown came in here, but I, I think that it is right to tread carefully when we're talking about scanning millions and millions of, of phones um, and balancing the privacy equities against a very, very legitimate law enforcement concern. Although it was interesting at no point that I heard, and I would have to go back and check this, but I did not hear them say precisely what they were going to do with whatever that scan detected. And I found that an interesting omission, at least from some of the early announcements, uh, because it would seem that if they were going to do this, they should have a goal. Is it simply to shut down the phone and not let it be used for that purpose, which would be no more than causing the migration and hurting of criminals to other platforms and, and uses? Um, but it just wasn't entirely clear. And it seems a little half-baked for a company, as you say, of that standing. Once you're a trillion, $2 trillion company, you know, you have to scratch your head when you see these announcements. You know, who, who approved them? What were they thinking? What were the conversations in the boardroom uh, when those announced, before those announcements were made? So, And, and again, um, what, were, what were the objectives and why not other, um, why not other crimes? There just so many... So many questions, not a lot of answers around this one, in, uh, to my mind, at least. Right. I agree. You know, child exploitation. What about WMD's manufacturer or, 
anything else that might be apparent from photographs. Anyway, I think that's really all that we have tonight. And frankly, it's a lot. And we've given you a lot of hyperlinks. Uh, it's been a pretty active week. We're going to hyperlink the C-SPAN uh, testimony today of military leaders, including Millie and Secretary Austin. And that testimony had to do with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I have to say, some of it was a little more substantive than I actually even expected. But I think you'll find it interesting as attorneys. And I think it's something that we should know. We should know what was said about this because we saw a lot on TV. Uh, we know a lot, probably a lot of us from our jobs, but it's also interesting to hear what is represented to Congress and the public. And I think it's worth knowing and then trying to see where the gaps are uh, sort of between the two. So thank you for listening. I just want to remind everybody that the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will continue to bring you national security law and news every week. So hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. And Elisa, did you see that the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, and friend of the podcast and the Standing Committee, is speaking to our humble committee on Wednesday, October 13th at 5 p.m.? How cool is that? She's very cool. And she's cool. Let me just say, she's very she's cool. Very cool. And if you don't believe us, please check back on our podcast that we did with her and Paul Leckis and her work on the commission for on public service. If you want to hear a little bit more about her work that she is doing these days, please go to the committee's website to register. Please find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC. Send us an email on nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And... As always, don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast, meaning Lisa and me today, are here in our individual capacities and not on behalf of any agency, company, or firm. All right. Thanks we'll so see much. you soon. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.